Good morning. <clears throat> we are launching into uh, Jonah 1, uh, the, the series here on Jonah. Um, we read the first three verses, but before we get to kind of dissecting those verses, um, what I want to do is spend a little bit of time for us understanding the person of Jonah, because he's a fascinating person. Uh, I want us to understand kind of the historical context that Jonah finds himself in, because that's, that's also fascinating. But beyond just being fascinating, I think that these uh, understanding a historical context of Jonah and his time and place will help kind of set up the rest of the series, the rest of the book, and give us a little bit of context uh, as, as we move forward here in the series. So the first thing that I want to kind of do is look at a map. So I think we've got a map that's, that can be pulled up on screen, hopefully. Okay, so we've got this map here, and Jonah lives apparently in the vicinity of Joppa because it says that the word of, Lord, of the Lord comes to Jonah, and, and then Jonah you know, ignores the word of the Lord and flees to uh, Joppa where he you know, gets on a ship. So we know that Jonah was in the proximity of Joppa. We think that it was, he was probably uh, in Jerusalem based on the textual clues. Uh, Jonah was a prophet. We think that probably he was in Jerusalem in the temple where the presence of the Lord you know, was and that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah uh, and that Jonah then travels about two to three days by foot to this port here in Joppa as opposed to traveling about 500 miles by foot to go to Nineveh. So instead, what Jonah does is he gets on a ship, a port in Joppa, headed for Tarshish. Now, uh, Tarshish was 2,500 miles away, and it was the furthest west of known civilization at that time. It was, in their minds, the other side of the world. Uh, and so Jonah was ignoring God's request to go 500 miles, and instead he was going completely the opposite direction, five times the distance by sea across the Mediterranean, uh, and probably it would take several months to get to Tarshish, and they would have to stop off at various places, and he was going to the opposite end of the world as far uh, as he was concerned. So now let's talk about uh, and that's good. We're good with that graphic. Thank you. Um, now let's talk about Nineveh. You know, what is Nineveh? Um, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, I'll mention this because it's relevant. Jonah is a Jew, and he's part of the nation of Israel. But Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire had been subjecting for decades, actually, neighboring uh, nations uh, to heavy tribute, including at times uh, the nation of Israel, to heavy tribute taxes. Uh, and this happened in Jonah's lifetime. Assyria had continually threatened the northern kingdom of Israel with total takeover. And when I say total takeover, I mean absolute devastation. Uh, the Assyrian Empire has been called by historians the ancient terrorist state. They would burn enemy cities to the ground. They would dismember, decapitate, and flay uh, their captives alive. It was well known that they would force uh, women and children captives to parade through the streets holding the body parts of their husbands, fathers, and sons. 
They displayed these parts then on their city walls. They enslaved those that they let live. They used women and girls for perverse reasons. One article that I read uh, this week called the Assyrian Empire, the Lords of Torture. They loved violence so much that it dominated their artwork. Um, Assyrian art has been recovered that depicts their violence. Uh, And in fact, the Assyrians would record their violence on stone tablets, and then they would deliver those tablets to the surrounding nations, literally waging a campaign of terror. You know, don't mess with us. Let's look at some of, we've got several of these uh, graphics. So here uh, we've got the Assyrians attacking somebody. This is, this, these are taken from a stone tablet, uh, attacking, torturing individuals. Uh, another, next slide. We've got decapitations taking place. Next slide. Impaled bodies. I mean, these are the kinds of things that they did. These were the, this was what they would do. They would send these tablets out to the surrounding nations. There's enough, one more slide that you can see some of these stone tablets that we still have to this day. Um, thank you for the slides. Um, their thirst for violence and brutality goes beyond our comprehension. I mean, there are things that they did beyond the things that I've already talked about that I can't even speak of because it's so obscene. The historical understanding of, of this is key to to us understanding Jonah's outright disagreement with God about going to the city of Nineveh. And then regarding Jonah, we need to understand um, his history as well. So in 2 Kings um, chapter 14, we find that Jonah uh, ministered as a prophet of God during uh, the the reign of Israel's king Jeroboam II. But he wasn't the only prophet at that time. Uh, Amos and Hosea were also prophets who were alive uh, and ministering at the same time as Jonah. And whereas Amos and Hosea had kind of criticized Israel and criticized the king and um, because of the injustice that Amos and Hosea saw because of their unfaithfulness to God, Jonah, on the other hand, was an avid supporter. He was on the, on the inside, was an avid supporter of uh, the things that were being accomplished under the regime of uh, Jeroboam II. And particularly, Jonah supported the very strong uh, militaristic stance, similar to the surrounding nations. Jonah had supported that and wanted to see Israel use their, their military to expand their geographical footprint. Jonah desired ultimately that Israel would become a little bit more like, I mean, not the brutality of Assyria and Nineveh, but that Israel would embrace some of their tactics in order to be you know, a world power. Jonah would have been considered patriotic, but even beyond that, he was nationalistic in the sense that he did believe that because he was a Jewish person, that the nation of Israel and that the Jews were inherently better human beings than the rest of the world. And so with all of that in mind, with that historical context in mind, let's look again here at, I mean, it goes, there's no warm-up in Jonah. It goes straight to the point. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. 
So God, it's like, let me get this straight, God. You call Jonah, the nationalist kind of racist prophet, and tell him to go to another ethnic group that he hates. When you could have chosen Amos or Hosea, you chose Jonah. Strike one God, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Strike one God. Uh, And then God calls Jonah to go to the capital of the most violent nation in all of the world where they also hate Jonah and hate Jews. Strike number two, God. And God calls Jonah to go to the capital of the most violent nation in all of the world and to call them out, to speak against them, to call them to repent. Strike three, God. See, when we read Jonah, it would be easy for us to be like, I don't understand. What's the big deal? God's just calling Jonah to go on this, mission, this missions trip to share the gospel with somebody. Uh, but that would be naive to, to, um, to believe that. When actually, this doesn't, what God is asking Jonah doesn't make any sense at all. Like, imagine if you had a conversation with one of your friends or parents or family, you know, whatever. You had a conversation with someone close and you said, you know, I was in church this morning and the word of the Lord came to me and I believe that God has spoken and is calling me to go to, you know, the most violent people on planet earth. Maybe it's a, it's a terrorist group or a drug cartel or something like that. I'm going to walk right in to the middle of their camp or right into the middle of their city and I'm going to proclaim that they need to repent and turn to Jesus. That's what I believe God has called me to do. We would probably say, are you sure about that? Right? Like our, because that doesn't make sense. That's, that's, that just doesn't make sense. And so if any of us had been in Jonah's shoes and had gotten the same word from God, we probably would have thought the exact same thing as Jonah. What are you talking about, God? This does not make sense. I hate them. They hate me. And when, if I do this, uh, they're going to kill me, but only after they've tortured me for days. Like, God, if this is your mission, it's a suicide mission. But also, this was unprecedented. Never had God asked any prophet of Israel to leave and go proclaim God's truth to a foreign nation. Jonah was the very first. And so Jonah is rightly confused. He is operating under a very specific understanding of who God is and how he operates. And when even God himself challenges that understanding, it's more than Jonah's head can handle. What's happening is that Jonah has, in his own mind, created a God of his own understanding that he can wrap his mind around, a God who thinks like him, a God who uh, blesses us and accepts us and punishes and destroys and kills our enemies. But then when the real God shows up, Jonah is completely bewildered. And that's where I kind of want to hang out today in these three short verses. These verses highlight this idea of the presence of the real God. The presence of the real God. What do we do when we experience the presence of the real God? And I want you to see this presence. In verse 1 it says, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. God's presence 
comes to Jonah. In verse 2, it says uh, that God says that the, the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. And literally, like the Hebrew wording there is that the wickedness of uh, the Ninevites has come up into my face. They've done it right in my face. It's this idea that they've done it in my presence. And then in verse 3, it says, but Jonah rose to flee, right, to flee from the presence of the Lord. And it says, then later on, it says uh, that he went to he went to go with them to Tarshish, again, away from the presence of the Lord. So this idea of God's presence permeates uh, these first three verses in Jonah. And we are not so unlike Jonah. When we experience the presence of God, God bringing us into an experience or situation that doesn't make sense to us, there is a sense whether physically or in our hearts, right, that we uh, all too often desire to flee the presence of God. Uh, when we experience the real God and not the God that we've created, that we've boxed in, the God that we can understand and wrap our head around, when we experience the real God, I would submit to you that we are often just as thrown off as Jonah. I call these moments the who are you moments? Who are you moments, right? God, who are you kind of moments. Have you ever had that experience with someone where you have a who are you moment, where you experience someone in a way that doesn't fit the preconceived boxed in idea of how you had imagined them? Uh, I had a, a, a situation like that occur here this past year. Uh, my wife and I are coming up here in a couple weeks on 19 years of marriage. And after, I know, I, I look way too young to be... Uh, and after 19 years of marriage, going on 19 years of marriage, I thought I could not be surprised, right? I know this woman. I could not be surprised. I had her figured out. Rookie mistake. Right? Rookie mistake. Um, this past year, my family uh, decided we were going to have a little bit of a get-together. And at this get-together, my brother, Matt, showed up, and he had brought uh, a bottle of hot sauce. That's like his thing. He like, makes hot sauces, but he had bought this bottle of hot sauce, and you know, it was kind of like the challenge of who is brave enough to try this hot sauce. Let me go ahead and show you. There, we're going to keep a graphic on, on screen here, okay? This is the Scoville scale of, of hotness. Now, for me, when I get to like jalapeno, like jalapeno poppers or jalapenos on your pizza, uh, that's where I'm like, woo, we're getting crazy tonight, right? Okay, that's, that's me. But my brother Matt showed up with a bottle that was two million. 2 million on the Scoville scale. Now, for context, again, I want you to see that 2 million is basically like you're eating pepper spray, okay? You're eating pepper spray at that, at that point. And so my brother Matt shows up with this bottle, and you can take that graphic off now. My brother Matt shows up, my brother Matt shows up with this bottle, and uh, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not trying that. Like, I'm not an idiot. I'm not trying that. Um, and so... Uh, I value the rest of my evening and tomorrow, you know. Uh, so I'm not trying that. And so he's like, well, just take your finger. Don't even take really anything off of it. I'm just going to crack open the bottle. Just dab your finger on the top. 
and just whatever residue comes off, and then just touch your tongue and tell me what you think. So I'm like, fine, I'll do that. So I do that, and I'm like flushed and sweaty for like 10 minutes, just off of like, I mean, there wasn't even anything on my finger. It was just a little dab, right? Uh, And so my brother, Matt, who can take some heat, he takes a chicken wing and just puts a little dab on it, just a little dab, and he eats it. And for the next like 15 minutes, he's red, sweaty. And, uh, and I'm like, see, that was a mistake. So my wife, uh, gentle, meek, and mild as always, poured it out like it was mild barbecue sauce, <laughs> like all over her plate. And she's like dipping her fries and wings into it. And she's like, that is, that, yeah, that's a little hot. It's got a good smoky flavor to it though. And I'm like, what? Smoky flavor, that is pure fire. And so I was like, who are you? Who are you? Do I even know you? This is a side of you that I've never seen before. I didn't realize that you were one part Martha Stewart and one part fire-breathing dragon. Uh, Like, this is an interesting fusion in one person. Who are you? Now, that's a silly example. But the point is this. We have all experienced being thrown off by someone, right? Having those who are you moments in other people. And we have those who are moments with finite human beings. How much more so will we have a who are you moment or moments in life with an infinite God? And sometimes those moments manifest in ways that are to our joy and our pleasure and our answered prayer. And sometimes those who are moments are confusing, frustrating, angering, gut-wrenching, and tragic. What do we do when we experience the presence of the real God in that way? When he destroys our expectations in a frustrating, angering way. I'll tell you what Jonah did. He did what most of us would do. He ran from the presence of God. Now, the irony um, in this is that God had just revealed to Jonah that the evil of the Ninevites had come up before his face. In other words, God's presence isn't tied to any geographical area, right? God is everywhere. Right? Proverbs 15.3 says that the, the eyes, the presence, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, Jonah, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Here's the thing. Jonah knows that God is everywhere. We know that God is everywhere. And that doesn't stop Jonah, and that doesn't stop us from running. And by the way, running from God's presence isn't just always, like, physical. Um, Jonah ran physically from God's presence, yes, but that was merely a representation of what was already happening in Jonah's heart. We, we, we can't miss this, that the fact that Jonah was running so far away to the other side of the world. I mean, he was, he was leaving his life for good. 
He was leaving, his, he was leaving everything forever. And in Jonah's mind, what he was saying in his heart and physically is he was saying, God, I am done listening to you. I am done with you. I'm done with God. I'm running from you. That is what Jonah was was doing and saying. And this is true for us too. There's a way in which we can run from God in our hearts and it manifests itself in physical ways in an outward way. Why do we run from God physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually? Why do we run from God? I think at the core of it all, at least for Jonah, and I think for a lot of us as well, at the core of this kind of running away from God is a kind of mistrust, a mistrust in God and what God is wanting to accomplish. I think, uh, I think our thinking goes something like this. This is what I think should happen in my life. This is what I want. This right here. This is how it should go in life. And God contextually, circumstantially says, nope, this is what I'm doing in your life. This is what I'm giving you. And so because I cannot conceive of a good reason as to why God isn't giving me this and instead he's giving me this, then I say I'm justified. I'm justified in running or disobeying or fleeing. It's a kind, it's actually, and this is where it gets a little bit like where we really need to examine this sin that's in all of us. Uh, it is a kind of blame shifting, actually. Um, God, I would obey you. I would obey you and do this over here, but you have been unreasonable. You're asking me to do something that I cannot conceive of. This is unreasonable, and so therefore, God, I'm running from you, but it's your fault you have forced my hand. This is the story of uh, since the beginning of creation. I mean, this is, this is Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden, right? When God confronts the disobedience in Adam, who has run and fled and hidden from God, and he's caught, what does Adam say to God? Does he own it? No, there's a kind of blame shifting. He's like, Listen, God, I, I would have obeyed you, but you put me in this situation because you gave me a woman. You gave me the woman. And this, so really, God, this is on you. And so the question that the presence of the real God, when we experience the presence of the real God, the question that it highlights for us is, does God know best or do we? Is God allowed to do something in your life or everything in your life in a way that doesn't fit your preconceived idea of how he should be relating to you? Is your relationship with God on your terms or his? God is continually revealing himself to us. His presence is revealing himself to us in ways that invite uh, us to trust him and to grow us into the person of Christ, to mold us more in Christ's image. Right? That, that is what God is accomplishing. We have our own goals, you know, to be happy, healthy, wise, successful, whatever it may be. We have our agenda. But God's agenda for us is, I want this person for the rest of eternity to be molded into the image of Jesus. And so sometimes God accomplishes that in ways that are very disagreeable to us. And ultimately, the problem that Jonah has, the problem that we have, 
is that we don't trust God. We think we know better than him on how our life should go. But I want to point out something about Jonah and his disobedience. Because maybe you're here and you're, feeling, you're like, oh my gosh, like, yes, I feel the weight of that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm someone who maybe physically I don't run, but in my heart I run, right? That's, my, that's me. Maybe you're feeling like the weight of that. And, um, and so I want to speak into that a little bit, if you're feeling that, that weight. Does God discard Jonah? Does God say, fine, Jonah, I'm done with you? Does God do that? No. Does God remove his presence from Jonah? No, he doesn't. He, he pursues Jonah, in fact. Now, does God pursue Jonah with discipline? Yes. And we'll, we'll get to that in the rest of the book. God continues to traffic with Jonah. Now, Jonah makes it hard on himself. I mean, up to the very end, Jonah is being just a total jerk. He resists God all the way to the end, but God never discards Jonah, never abandons him. God never forsakes him because he wasn't good enough or obedient enough. And I think one of the lessons that we see here, one of the overarching lessons of the book of Jonah and really all of Scripture is that our legs... Our ships and our hearts aren't fast enough to outrun a God who loves us. My dad once told this story uh, to me when I was a kid, and I thought it was hilarious. Um, as a kid, it was, it was funny to hear my dad recounting memories of when he was a child. And so my dad uh, conveyed this story of when he was probably about five or six years old, he uh, went to his mom and told his mom, my grandmother, uh, I'm going to run away from home. I'm, I'm leaving home. And so she asked him, like, okay, where, where are you going? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. Okay. Um, but I'm not staying here. Okay. So she got out a little suitcase for him, and she, like, helped him pack. <laughs> and, uh, you know, put, put some outfits and some fresh underwear, socks, and, you know, jeans in there. Uh, she said she made a couple of sandwiches for him and put some sandwiches in there for him. So he was, in his mind, he's set. You know, five, six years old, I've got my suitcase my clothes, and a couple of sandwiches. So he sets off down the road, running away from home, and he gets to the end of the street at the stop sign. And he, he said he just kind of hung out there for a little bit, you know, for five minutes or so, just kind of standing there, and he was kind of like, where am I going to go? Like, what am I doing, right? Uh, and um, he's just kind of standing there, and eventually he's like, I have nowhere else to go. So he turns around, and he, and he comes home. And my, my uh, you know how sometimes stories get told over and over and over and over again uh, in your family? You like, have anybody like that? Like where they tell the same family story like 17 times in your life or something? So, that, so this story was getting told all the time. And it once got then brought up uh, in the presence of my grandmother. And my grandmother recounted her perspective of it. She's like, yeah, I did all that. I packed his bag, made him sandwich, you know, set him out the door. And she said, but I was looking at him on, you know, at the end of the street. I was watching him on the end of the street, and I had made up my mind. I had grabbed my coat and grabbed my keys to the car, and if he went around the corner and, and was serious about actually running away, uh, she's like, I was going to go follow him. I would follow him and make sure that he was okay. Isn't that kind of like our Heavenly Father? We're running like we have somewhere to go, like we got somewhere better to go. 
Jonah thought that when the sailors threw him out of the boat, which we'll get to here in, in a week or two, he thought, that's it. God's done with me. That's it. That's the end of my life. God is done with me. But it's like, Jonah, do you think you're going to run from God and he's just going to let that happen? Church, do you think that you're going to run from God and your loving father is just going to let that happen? We're like five-year-olds running away from home to who knows where. And God is a father who loves his kids too much to let them run away. The entire Bible, the book of Jonah, and the, the rest of the entire Bible is a story of people who run from God and a God who chases them down. Would it not be better to submit and trust a God that has your eternal and ultimate well-being in mind over the God of your creation? Would it not be better for all of us Jonahs here today to experience the presence of a real God and what he's trying to show us and reveal to us about himself than clinging to a God of our imagination. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not. Like there's going to be Jonah moments in all of our life where God calls us into some really hard stuff. But the story in scripture is that it's transforming that God's calling us into a place where we are fashioned into the image and likeness of Christ. And the real God did show up in flesh and blood in the form of Jesus. And he gave himself up for us. And he said, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. That's what Jesus said. By being cast into the belly of the death of the cross instead of a great fish. And after he rose from the death of the cross, he secured our salvation. And so each week, we take communion to remember Jesus and remember that even while we were yet sinners, while we were still running from God, that he pursued us. And a communion is a reminder of his presence with us, in us, and for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread with his disciples and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. And so every week we gather and then we come forward afterwards. Those of us who proclaim the realities of the real God, we come forward and we take a piece of the, the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, uh, uh, you know, as your conscience permits. And it's a reminder to us that Christ will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That he's for us, he's in us, and through us always. So in a moment, the band's going to come play. And, uh, and then as they're playing, there'll be stations here to the left and to the right. And you're invited to come forward. If you proclaim these realities, you're invited to come forward and remember the presence of God with us, uh, the presence of God that wants to transform us into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are a God that we cannot wrap our heads around. And you do wonderful things and beautiful things and you answer our prayers and you also sometimes feel like you do the exact opposite. You do hard things. 
You call us into confusing, frustrating situations. And we don't know why. We don't know why. You never explained yourself to Jonah, and you don't explain yourself to us. But God, I do know that you are always taking whatever situation that we find ourselves in and making us into your image. And my prayer for myself and for this church is that we learn to trust that, that we trust you. We thank you for sending your son Jesus, the presence, your physical presence walking among us to perish in our place and uh, so that we someday can be physically present with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.